Section 34 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 19. The Three French Presidents. Part 2. When Gambetta was dead, the man who stepped into his place was Jules Ferry. He was a lawyer, born in the Vosges in 1832. He had never been personally intimate with Gambetta, but he succeeded to his political inheritance, became chief of his party, secured the majority that Gambetta never could get in the chamber, and did all that Gambetta had failed to do. His attention when Prime Minister was largely devoted to the development of French industry and colonies. He began a war in Tonquin, he annexed Tunis, and commenced aggressions in Madagascar. All of these enterprises have proved difficult, unprofitable, and wasteful of life and money. The position of France with relation to other powers has become very isolated. Her best friend, strange to say, is Russia, the young republic and the absolute Tsar. Germany, Austria, and Italy form the alliance called the Dreibund. But their military force united is not quite equal to that of France and Russia combined. If Russia ever attacks the three powers of Central Europe on the east, it is not to be doubted that France will rush upon Alsace and Lorraine. The mob of Paris in 1884 put M. Grévy to much annoyance and embarrassment by hissing and hooting the young king of Spain on his way through the French capital because he had accepted the honorary colonelcy of a German regiment, and M. Grévy and his foreign minister had profoundly to apologize. The incident was traceable, it was said at the time, to the indiscretions of M. Daniel Wilson, the president's son-in-law, whose melancholy story remains to be told. Shortly before Gambetta's death, occurred that of the prince imperial of Zululand and that of the Comte de Chambord in Austria. The son of Napoleon III had been educated at Woolwich, the West Point Academy of England. When the Zulu war broke out, all his young English companions were ordered to Africa, and he entreated his mother to let him go. He wanted to learn the art of war, he said, and perhaps, too, he wished to acquire popularity with the people of England, in view of a future alliance with the daughter of Queen Victoria. The general commanding at the seat of war was far from glad to see him. He knew the dangers of savage warfare, and felt the responsibility of such a charge. For some time he kept the prince working in an office, but at last permitted him to go on a reconnoitring expedition where little danger was anticipated. There is no page in history so dishonourable to the valour and good conduct of an English gentleman as that which records how, when surprised by Zulus, the young prince was deserted by his superior officer and his companions and while trying to mount his restive horse, was slain. He left a will leaving his claims, such as they were, to the imperial throne of France, to his young cousin Victor Napoleon, thus overlooking the father of that young prince, Jérôme Napoleon, the famous Plonplon. The reconciliation which in 1873 took place between the Comte de Chambord and his distant cousins of the House of Orléans never resulted in cordial relations, though the Comte de Paris, as his cousin's heir, visited the Comte de Chambord at Fruisdorf the comtesse de chambord despised and disliked the family of orleans and the monarchist party in france still remained divided into legitimists and orleanists the latter protesting that they only desired a constitutional sovereign and did not hold to the doctrine of right divine the comte de chambord died august twenty fourth eighteen eighty three his malady was cancer in the stomach complicated by other disorders the Orleanist princes hastened to Fruisdorf to attend his funeral, but they were so disdainfully treated by his widow that they deemed it due to their self-respect to retire before the obsequies. This is how Figaro, a leading legitimist journal in Paris, speaks of the Comte de Chambord. Quote, he had noble qualities and great virtues. 
What most distinguished him was an intense feeling of royal dignity, which he guarded most jealously by act and word. But we may be permitted to doubt whether the fifty-three years he had passed in exile had qualified him to understand and to sympathize with the great changes in public opinion in his own country, and the true tendencies of the present and the rising generation. In his youth he was entirely guided by others, but after the coup d'état of 1851 he took things into his own hands, and directed his course up to the last moment with a firmness which admitted of neither contradiction nor dispute. He sincerely wished to promote liberty. There was nothing in him of the despot, but he lived all his life out of France, and could not comprehend the preferences and the habits which had grown into national feeling. He was kindly, genial, intelligent, witty, dignified, and affable. He only needed to have been brought up among his people to have made an admirable sovereign. Had the first plan of the Revolution of 1830 been carried out, and the young prince been made king, with Louis-Philippe lieutenant-general till his majority, it is possible that France might have been spared great tribulations. For our own part, continues the Figaro, we have always looked upon monarchy as the best government for the peace, prosperity, and liberty of France, but with the personal politics of the Comte de Chambord we could not agree. After all France had gone through, it was necessary to nationalize the king and to royalize the nation. M. le Comte de Chambord utterly refused to yield anything to constitutional ideas and to become what he called the king of the revolution. It is true that the white flag of the Bourbon had been associated with a long line of glories in France, but for a hundred years the tricolore had been the flag under which French soldiers had marched to victory. It was this matter of the flag that prevented the success of the plan of restoration in 1873, two months after the Comte de Paris had so patriotically sacrificed some of his own most cherished feelings by his reconciliation, for his country's sake, with his cousin at Fruisdorf. The party could do nothing without its head. The Orleanist princes would not act without their chief, and the opportunity passed, perhaps never to return. Quote, Henri V never hesitated about the matter of the flag, says another writer. He regarded its color as above everything important. The question of white or tricolor was to him a vital thing. He said kings have their private points of personal honor like mere citizens. I should feel myself to be sacrificing my honor, since I was born a king, if I made any concessions on the subject of the white flag of my family. With respect to other things I may concede, but as to that, never, never. The only thing for which I have ever reproached Louis the Sixteenth was for having for one moment suffered the bonnet rouge to be placed upon his head to save his royalty. Now you are proposing to me to do the same thing. No. The Count had drawn up a constitution for France after his own ideas, but he would show it to no man. No human being had any power to influence him, but he was heard to say more than once, I will never diminish the power of the sovereign. I desire liberty and progress to emanate from the king. Royalty should progress with the age, but never cease to be itself in all things. He deemed the authority he claimed to be his by right divine, but one may be permitted to think, concludes this writer, that this authority, if it came from heaven, has been recalled there." Four months before his death he had a touching interview with his heir, the Comte de Paris, at Fruisdorf. The Count little expected, then, that he would be prevented from taking the part of chief mourner at the funeral, which took place September 1, 1883, at Göritz, when the king, who had never reigned, was laid beside Charles X, his grandfather. We may best conclude this account of the Comte de Chambord with some touching words which he addressed to his disappointed supporters in 1875. Quote, Sometimes I am reproached for not having chosen to reign when the opportunity was offered me, and for having perhaps lost that opportunity forever. This is a misconception. Tell it abroad boldly. I am the depositary of legitimate monarchy. I will guard my birthright till my last sigh. 
I desire royalty as my heritage, as my duty, but never by chance or by intrigue. In other times I might have been willing, as some of my ancestors had been, to recover my birthright by force of arms. What would have been possible and reasonable formerly is not so now. After forty years of revolution, civil war, invasion, and coup d'état, the monarchy I represent can only commend itself to Europe and the French people as one of peace, conciliation, and preservation. The King of France must return to France as a shepherd to his fold, or else remain in exile. If I must not return, divine providence will bear me witness before the French people that I have done my duty with honest intentions. In the midst of the prevailing ignominies of the present age, it is well that the life and policy of an exiled king should stand out white in all their loyalty. There was little of general interest in French politics during the remaining years of M. Grévy's first administration, which ended early in 1886. He was the first French president who had reached the end of his term. He was quietly re-elected by the joint vote of the two chambers, not so much because he was popular as because there seemed no one more eligible for the position. He had not had much good fortune in his administration. M. Ferry's colonization schemes had cost great sums of money and had led to jealousies and disputes with foreign nations. French finances had become embarrassed. The French national debt in 1888 was almost twice as great as that of England, and the largest additions to it were made during M. Grévy's presidency, when enormous sums were spent on public works and on M. Ferry's colonial enterprises. The mere interest on the debt amounts annually to fifty millions of dollars, and every attempt at reduction is frustrated by the chambers, which are unwilling to approve either new taxes or new loans. The two principal points of interest during the latter years of M. Grévy's first term of office concerned the persecution of the Church and the persecution of the princes of the House of Orléans. The Republic began by taking down the crucifixes in all public places, such as courtrooms, magistrates' offices, and public schools. For in France men swear by holding up a hand before the crucifix, instead of by our own irreverent and dirty custom of kissing the book. Then the education of children was made compulsory, but schools were closed that had been taught by priests, monks, or nuns. Next, sisters of charity were forbidden to nurse in the hospitals, their places being supplied by women little fitted to replace them. As to the Orléans princes, in 1886, the year of M. Grévy's second election, they were summarily ordered to quit France, not that they had done anything that called for exile, but because Prince Napoleon, who called himself the Prince Imperial and head of the Bonaparte dynasty, had put forth a pamphlet concerning his pretensions to the imperial throne. This led to the banishment of all members of ex-royal families from French soil, and their erasure from any army list, if they were serving as French soldiers. This decree was particularly hard upon the Duc d'Aumale, who was a French general and had done good service under Chanzy and Gambetta in the darkest days of the calamities of France. The Comte de Paris deeply felt the outrage. He gave the world to understand that he had never conspired against the French Republic while living on his estates in France, but felt free to do so after this aggression. The Duc d'Aumale avenged himself by an act of truly royal magnificence. He published part of his will, bequeathing to the French Institute, of which he was a member, that splendid estate and palace of Chantilly, which he had inherited from his godfather, the old Duc de Bourbon. With its collections, its library, its archives, and its pictures, the gift is valued at from thirty-five to forty millions of francs. The revenue of the estate is to be spent in enriching the collections, in encouraging scientific research, in pensioning aged authors, artists, and scientific discoverers. Quote, it is the grandest gift, says M. Gabriel Monod, ever given to a country. It is worthy of a prince who joins to the attractive grace of noble breeding and the finest qualities of a soldier, the talents of a man of letters, the learning of a scholar, and the taste of an artist. End quote. 
M. Grévy, le vieux, quote, the old fellow, end quote, as his Parisians irreverently called him, was deeply attached to his daughter, whose husband, M. Daniel Wilson, a presumptuous speculative person, had made himself obnoxious to society and to all the political parties. This man lived at the Élysée with his family, and made free use of presidential privileges. It is said that by using the President's right of franking letters for his business affairs, he saved himself in postage forty thousand francs per annum. He also made use of information that he obtained as son-in-law of the President to further his own interests, and once or twice he got M. Grévy into trouble by the unwarrantable publication of certain matters in a newspaper of which he was the proprietor. Besides this, he was at the head of a great number of financial schemes whose business he conducted under the roof of the Élysée. Before he married Mademoiselle Grévy, a conseil de famille had deprived him of any control over his property till he came of age, on account of his recklessness, but he was what in America we call, quote-unquote, a smart man, and M. Grévy was very much attached to him. In the early days of 1887, a person who considered himself defrauded in a nefarious bargain he was trying to make with an adventuress denounced to the police of Paris a Madame Limousin, to whom he had paid money on her promise to secure for him the decoration of the Legion of Honour. He wanted it to promote the sale of some kind of patent article in which he was interested. To the astonishment of the police, when they raided the residence of Madame Limousin, letters were found compromising two generals, General Caffarel, who had been high in the War Department when General Boulanger was minister, and General Dandelot, author of a book much commended by military authorities on the siege of Metz. General Caffarel was a gallant old officer, and it is said the scene was most piteous when, as part of his punishment, the police tore from his coat his own decoration of the Legion of Honour. The war minister tried to smother the scandal and to save the generals, but it got into the public prints, with many exaggerations. General Dandelot took to flight. The police arrested Madame Limousin, her accomplice, Madame Ratazzi, and several other persons. The public grew very much excited. It was said that state secrets were given over to pillage, that they were sold to the Germans, that the government was at the mercy of thieves and jobbers. Quote, One figure, wrote M. Monod, stood out from the rest as a mark for suspicion. It was that of M. Daniel Wilson. He had never been popular with frequenters of the Élysée. He was a rich man, both on his own and his wife's side, and was an able man and a man of influence in business affairs. He had been under-secretary of finance and president of the Committee of the Budget." Many thought he had the best chance of any man for succeeding M. Grévy as president of France. He was, however, one of those unquiet spirits who may be found frequently among speculators and financiers. He had no scruple about using his position to promote his own business interests and the interests of the schemes in which he was engaged, nor did he hesitate to give useful information to leaders who favoured his own views in the chambers and were in opposition to the ministers he disliked. Thus the son-in-law of the President intrigued against the President's ministers, and Jules Ferry, leader of the Republican Law and Order Party in the chamber, and his followers could not forgive him for having thus betrayed them. Wilson belonged to the advanced section of the Republican Party, the Reds, but he was not so popular with them that they were unwilling to attack him, provided they could thereby get rid of M. Grévy and put a more advanced Republican in his place. No positive accusation, however, in the matter of Madame Limousin could have been brought against M. Wilson. Had it not been discovered by that lady's counsel that two of the letters seized and held as evidence, letters from M. Wilson to Madame Limousin, were written on paper manufactured after their date, an incident not unfamiliar to readers of old-fashioned English novels. The real letters, therefore, had undoubtedly been abstracted and replaced by others of a less compromising kind. 
the ministry which up to the time of this discovery had endeavoured to keep the name of the president's son-in-law from being connected with the sale of decorations of the legion of honour was obliged to authorise his prosecution and the prefect of police who was suspected of having given back to m wilson his own letters was forced to resign when the trial of m wilson and the prefect came on they were acquitted not by a verdict of not guilty but because the french code contained no clause that constituted it an offence for a man to obtain possession of his own letters the judge when he acquitted the accused stated that there was no doubt whatever of the substitution then from all sides information began to pour in from people who had paid money to m wilson to procure the ministerial or presidential favours and such disclosures could not but reflect on m grevy instantly his enemies seized their opportunity for once monarchists and anarchists united and endeavoured to force the president to resign but the old man stood by his son-in-law in his hour of adversity and would not go then the coalition changed its base and attacked m rouvier the prime minister he was outvoted in the chamber on some insignificant question and having no parliamentary majority he was forced to resign by no efforts could m grevy get any one to take his place once he thought he had persuaded m clemenceau a radical leader to form a ministry but his party gave him to understand that they would not support him the president then seventy-five years of age was in a position in which any one but a partisan political opponent must have been moved to pity him he had been so long and so loudly extolled for his extreme respectability and his austere virtues that he had never dreamed that public opinion on such a point as this could turn against him he could not endure the idea of being dismissed with contempt less than two years after his re-election to the presidency by the unanimous vote of all republicans he was willing to go but he did not choose to be forced to go by the brutal summons of an infuriated public yet france pending his decision was without a government something had to be done he employed every device to gain time he had interviews with men of various parties he grew more and more careworn and aged his troubles showed themselves in his carriage and his face Quote, by turns he was insinuating, eloquent, lively, pathetic. He showed a suppleness and a tenacity of purpose that amazed those brought into contact with him. If he could but gain time, he hoped that the Republicans would disagree about his successor and decide to rally round him. But at last he was forced to send in his resignation. He did so December 1, 1887, in a message which, by the confusion of its language, betrayed the anguish of his mind." A few days after giving up his quarters at the Élysée as President of the Republic, he was stricken down by paralysis. When the resignation of M. Grévy had been accepted, came the question, who should succeed him? If the Republican Party split and failed to choose a president, the monarchists might seize their opportunity. The candidate most acceptable to the moderate Republicans was M. Jules Ferry, but he was unpopular with the Radicals. He had belonged to the Committee of Defence and the Government of Versailles which had put down the Commune his colonial policy had not been a success and he was known to have no toleration for the reds mobs collected in the streets shouting quote, a bas ferry he was accused of being the candidate of the comte de paris of the pope of bismarck he was quote, ferry the traitor ferry the russian ferry the clerical ferry the orleanist the radicals with the ex-communist general eudes at their head swore to take up arms if ferry were elected by the chambers the moderate republicans were not strong enough without help to carry his election it was a case when a dark horse was wanted an obscure man against whom nothing was known the radicals proposed two candidates m de fressinet who though not a radical was thought weak enough to be ruled by them and m floquet but the moderates would not lend their aid to elect either of these men at last both parties united on m sedi carnot 
There were two reasons for his election. The first lay in his name. He was the grandson of Lazare Carnot, elected deputy in 1792 to the National Convention from Arras, at the same time as his friend Robespierre. This man and Robespierre had belonged to the same literary society in Arras, a club into which no one could be admitted without writing a love-song. Lazare Carnot was the good man of the Revolution. Not a stain rests upon his character. He organized the glorious armies of the Republic, and was afterwards one of the members of the Directory. His son, Hippolyte Carnot, as the oldest member in the Senate in 1887, had the duty of announcing to his own son, Sadi Carnot, his election to the highest office in the gift of his countrymen. M. Hippolyte Carnot was a man of high character, who during a long life had filled many public offices. He was also a man of letters, and wrote a life of Barère, a book that will be best remembered by having come under the lash of Macaulay. Every cut inflicted upon Barère tells, and we delight in its severity. The second reason for Sadi Carnot's election was the popularity he acquired from its being supposed that when he was at the head of the Committee of Finance, he had resisted some illegal demands made on the Treasury by M. Wilson. The demands were resisted, it is true, but not more by M. Carnot than by his colleagues. Quote, he was made president of the French Republic, someone said, for an act of integrity he had never committed, and for giving himself the trouble to be born, like any heir of royalty. He is a good man who has made no enemies, either in public or private life. It may also be added that he seems to have attracted few personal friends. The Republic has grown in strength, and factious opposition has decreased during his administration. His republicanism is not advanced or rabid. He is rigidly honest. He has a charming wife, who, though slightly deaf, enjoys society and gives brilliant receptions. Poor M. Grévy passed away into sorrow and obscurity. He took up his residence on his estate in the department of the Jura, where in September 1891 he died. M. Wilson appears first to have made all his own relations rich, and then by speculations to have ruined them. In contemplating the disastrous end of M. Grévy, we must remember that the scandal which caused his fall, after so many years of honourable service for his country, amounts, so far as he was concerned, to very little. The only fault of which he can be accused was that of too great toleration of the speculative propensities of his son-in-law. It was proved, indeed, that there were agencies in the hands of disreputable persons in Paris for the purchase and sale of influence and honours, but there was little or no evidence that these agencies had had any influence with the public departments. The existence of such agencies under the Empire would have excited little comment. That the trials of Madame Limousin, General Caffarel, and M. Wilson so excited the public and produced such consequences may be proof, perhaps, of a keener sense of morality in the Parisian people. Someone said of M. Grévy that he was a radical in speech and a moderate in action, so that he pleased both parties. The strongest accusation against him was his personal love of economy and his entire indifference to show, literature, or art. It was also considered a fault in him as a French president that he showed little inclination to travel. Socially, the polite world accused him of wearing old hats and no gloves. On cold days he put his hands in his pockets, which in the eyes of some was worse than putting them for his own purposes into the pockets of other people. End of chapter 19 End of section 34